What a joy to be gathered on this last Sunday of the year. I pray that you would uh, use this week, uh, the time between now and, and next Sunday, if the Lord allows us to meet again, use this time to reflect on, uh, on the year that has just passed by and, uh, and make desires, prayerful desires, uh, God-centered desires for the new year. One of the things I want to ask you as, as we think about this, the end of this year and the beginning of the new year, do you think that God is worthy of the worship of all nations? Is God worthy of the adoration of all peoples? I mean, should that be a concern and a desire of our hearts to make sure that the name of Christ is exalted among all the earth. That's your desire. It is one of the ways we do that is through contributing to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Uh, the, one of the ways we do that is by supporting mis missionaries who take the gospel in other parts of the world that we are not able for various reasons to go. We want to continue as a church to be missions-minded. We want to continue as a church to be gospel-centered, not only here in our own vicinity, and we want to do that in Austin next year, but we want to do that also to the ends of the earth. We want to be a church that continues to support the spread of the gospel to all the nations. Why? Because God has a claim on all people. God has a claim on all people. And this morning, I encourage you to open the book of Acts, chapter 17. We'll be reading from verse 16 through 34. And uh, if you did not bring your Bible today, we encourage you to find a Bible provided in the chair in front of you. Uh, find this passage on page number 926. Hope you open Scripture and follow along as we continue this morning our sermon series through the book of Acts. This is our 40th sermon uh, so far, uh, next week, we'll have our brother uh, Echa, Samuel Echevria preach God's Word from the book of Revelation, and in two weeks, we'll pick up again in the book of Acts. But this morning, let's uh, open our scriptures, and let's make sure our hearts are open and ready to hear God's Word for ourselves, for us this morning. Here's the Word of the Lord. Now... While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue of the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something New. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, 
I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore you worship as unknown. This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of our, your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. At times of ignorance, God overlooked. But now, he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So what Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in prayer and asking the Lord to bless the reading and the proclamation of his word for our hearts? Father, thank you. Thank you that you have given us your truth. And Father, now we, we declare our inability by ourselves, by our own fleshly nature, to understand your word. So we ask that your spirit might illumine us, might enlighten us, that we may understand it, that we may hear it well we may engage you and your truth. I pray that you would be glorified among us by the power of your Holy Spirit in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, friends, in preparing for this message this week, um, it became quite clear the weightiness of this message was so vast and so deep that one sermon was not going to do it. So I decided to break this, ser this passage or the sermon on this passage in half. Now, that doesn't mean that the sermon will be half short. It just means it won't be twice as long as it should be. Um, well, next week, uh, like I mentioned, um, we will hear God's word from the book of Revelation through our brother Samuel Echeverria. Pray for him and pray that the Lord would use him to bring to us um, a word from the Lord. We'll pick up on the second part of the second sermon on the same text uh, two weeks from today, if the Lord allows us. But the events, as, uh, the events of, this of this text happened uh, in a different city. So far, um, in the book of Acts, the last chapter and a half, we've been in the region of Macedonia. The events happening today, in this passage that we read today, uh, Paul is in Athens. Not just a different city, a different region altogether. 
Uh, and if you remember, in chapter 16, Paul was called by, the, by an angel of the Lord to go to Macedonia to help. Well, surprisingly, or in God's providence, he only got to spend or stop in three cities. The city of, of Philippi, the city of Thessalonica, and the city of Berea. But because of the persecution that arose from the Jews in Thessalonica, Paul was driven out both of Thessalonica and out of Berea as well. So the, the brothers in Berea took Paul to Athens, far away, uh, to protect him from being persecuted. Actually, this is, how, this is how Paul gets to Athens. And actually, Paul even stays in Athens because he's waiting for Timothy and Silas to catch up with him. Paul had left Timothy and Silas to stay and strengthen the new believers in the, in the city of, of Berea and Thessalonica. Uh, but Paul is now in Athens, and he's waiting for Timothy and Silas to catch up with him so they could go on with the journey. That's why Paul is in Athens. It's amazing. Up until now, in the previous three cities, it was God's clear providence, God's clear call. This did not have that appearance of, of, God's, provid, of God's direct guidance. And yet God providentially used the persecution, used the plan to protect Paul's life so Paul could arrive in Athens and spend time there. Well, I invite you to look at this passage. And, and Paul's stay in Athens is famous uh, and is, is known in the history of the church for the famous speech on Mars Hills or in the Areopagus. Um, and yet this morning, I want to look not at the speech that Paul gave. I want to look at what happened around Paul's visit in Athens around that speech, because that is just as important as what happened when Paul actually did speak in the Areopagus. So I invite you to, to consider and, and look carefully at what happened in Athens prior to Paul's famous speech. Two things. Two things. Paul's heart was provoked by idolatry. Paul's heart was provoked by idolatry. By idolatry. It's interesting that we are told of Paul's spirit about the city of Athens. Paul has visited many cities. He has been in many regions. And all of those uh, have been in dire spiritual need. But only here are we given a window into Paul's spirit about the city. Paul's spirit was provoked in Athens. Look at verse 1. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, referring to Silas and Timothy, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, let's unpack this experience that Paul had in his own soul and in his own heart as he looked at the city of Athens. It may help us to remember some things about Athens. And as we do so, and as we look at the way Paul reacted, what Paul experienced as looking at the city of Athens, it might challenge us in how we look at cities. Pliny, one of the famous uh, figures of the uh, early centuries, early first and second century, uh, suggested that in Athens there were at least 73,000 statues offered to various gods. Now just imagine, 73,000 thousand statues. These were made not just of stone or brass, but also of gold, silver, marble, and other precious 
materials. And of course, besides these um, thousands of statues of worship, Athens was filled with architectural wonders, which were linked to Greek mythology. We should also remember that just a few centuries prior to this, Athens had been the, the center of the classical Greek world. It was a cradle of democracy. In the 5th century, it was the hub of the teaching of Socrates and Plato. I mean, Athens was a place that, that, that synergized together not just worship of idols, but culture, wisdom, uh, humanity, uh, the, the values of humanity. Calvin calls the city of Athens the mansion house of wisdom, the fountain of all arts, the mother of humanity. Now, even today, people go and visit Athens to see the ruins of what was once a great city. I mean, think about it. 2,000 years later, Athens is still a touristic place because of wonders and the, the amazing art that has happened in that city. When Paul visited Athens, what he was struck by was not its rich art or its impressive monuments like the Parthenon or the Acropolis or the Agora. He was, as impressive as these were for all the tourists that visited the city, what Paul was impressed by was the idolatry of the city. And he was provoked by it. This reaction of Paul is important for us uh, to observe. As, as someone said, what is important is that Paul was impressed by Athens not as a city of art, but as a city of false religion. John Stott asked once, what should be the reaction of a Christian who visits or lives in a city which is dominated by a non-Christian ideology or religion, a city which may be aesthetically magnificent and culturally sophisticated, but morally decadent and spiritually deceived or dead. What should be the reaction of Christians living or visiting such cities? Think of the major cities of Europe. If you ever have had a chance to visit Europe, we may go in place and want to see the monuments. But are we ever impressed by the spiritual deadness of places that once were the cradle of great missionary activity? Are our hearts broken and provoked by empty cathedrals, by places of worship that are being bought and transformed into something else than what they used to be? I ask you, if you were visiting such a city, would you feel provoked in your spirit by the idolatry, by the spiritual deadness of such cities? Have we ever been provoked by the idolatrous cities of the contemporary world? I ask you this morning, are our hearts primed to be provoked by idolatry? Are our hearts primed to be provoked by, our, by idolatry? Now, what would, what would happen? What, what needs to prime our hearts to be provoked by idolatry? What was going on in Paul's own heart and life? If we look at, at Paul, Paul's training, his, his great knowledge in, in the revelation of God in the Old Testament uh, and, and what's happening here, 
one of the things that we notice about this experience of Paul being provoked, the, this word of being provoked in the Spirit is only used one, once in the New Testament, but it's used many other times in the Old Testament. And most of the times it's used when God is provoked by the idolatry of His people. I think of places like uh, Exodus, when God just got him out of, of, of Egypt, and the people form a golden calf, and now they ascribe to this golden image the, the worthiness, the credit for being taken out of Egypt. And God is fuming and burning with anger. He's provoked by the idolatry of the Israelites. Or when the northern kingdom, they built an, an idol, uh, a calf idol, and God said in the book of Hosea about them, I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. When the book of Isaiah, God said in, at the end of the book of Isaiah, chapter 65, All day long I have held out my hand to an obstinate people who walk in my ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations, a people who continually provoke me. God is provoked in the Old Testament by the idolatry of his own people. But then it's also God's view of, of the idols themselves. God is constantly in the Old Testament teaching the people of Israel the worthlessness of idols. God has a pretty, pretty demeaning, pretty low view of idols, and that's an understatement. In, in the passage we read earlier in, from the book of Jeremiah, um, if you remember, God gives Israel this perspective on idols, and God says, House of Israel, thus says the Lord, Learn not the ways of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. Their idols, listen to this picture, their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. And they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them. For they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. This was God's view of idols. So when Paul sees an entire city like Athens who, proud, who was proud in its democracy, who was proud in its independence, who was proud in its, in its history of intellectualism, who was a very sophisticated city, to see a city submerged to its idols, Yes, all the art, all the literature, all the architecture was impressive, but it was all under the influence of what God called in Jeremiah scarecrows in a cucumber field. Wow. That's why Paul is provoked. How can so much wisdom actually be so much subdued to that which is utterly vanity? But it was not just God's view of idols that primed Paul's heart that was ready to be provoked by the idolatry. Paul's speech on Mars Hills, <clears throat> as we will see next, week, uh, next time in more, more focus and more detail, uh, but we will see that, God, that Paul focuses on the doctrine of God, who this God is. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth, the giver of life, the sustainer of all things. 
He's uncontainable by human beings. He cannot be represented by human shapes, by human things. He needs nothing. He's a God who is personally involved in the destinies of the nations. He determines when they should rise and when they should go down. He determines the boundaries of nations. The nations fight over boundaries. Even today in Eastern Europe, nations fight over their boundaries. God determines them. He's personally involved in the destinies of the nations. Why? For what purpose? So that the nations might seek after God. So to worship anything but this God who is involved in, in, the, in, the, in the affairs of the world in that, this kind of way, to worship anything but Him is to miss out on the purpose of why we have been created. To miss out on the purpose of why God is involved in the earth. In other words, this is, this is a view that Paul has of God. This is a view that Paul would preach of who God is to the Athenians. In other words, it is our view of God that should prime our hearts to be provoked by idolatry. Friends, if we have a superficial view of God, we may never be provoked by the idolatry around us. We just won't. Or another way to put it, if our hearts are never provoked by the idolatry around us, it may be because we ha might have a superficial view of God. Now, some of us may lament that our society is becoming less moralistic than in past years. That, that our, our, our culture, our, our, our country is changing so much. We're no longer the, the moral country, the, the Christian country that we used to be. Uh, don't equate such lament necessarily as being provoked by idolatry. Moral people can be just as idolatrous as immoral people. So uh, our country may have been just as committed to idolatry two centuries ago or, or several decades ago as today. We just, the shape of the idolatry is changing. It's it's just different kind of idolatry. But don't equate, don't equate the changes that are happening uh, to our own culture and country as simply being a, 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 a cry for more idolatry. Some people are more grieved about the political changes around us than about the idolatry that is growing around us. What does that say about our souls? And what they're primed with. When we're more provoked by the changes, political or, or otherwise, in our own country, than we're, than we're provoked by the idolatry that's around us. Are our hearts primed with God's truth so that our hearts could be provoked by the idolatry around us? That's a question I have for you this morning. Are our hearts primed with God's truth about who God is that our hearts could be provoked by the idolatry around us. Think of how the Lord's Prayer begins. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. In other words, Jesus taught us to pray for the name of God to be set apart, sanctified above all things, that no other name should receive our worship, our prayer, our adoration, our ultimate pursuit, but the name of God. Well, our, our hearts so primed for the glory of God's name 
then when we see others choose not to worship him, we're grieved. That we are so committed to the zeal of God's glory that it bothers us. It grieves us. It hurts us when we see others around us not be committed to God's glory. Henry uh, Martin, a missionary to Persia in the last century, said the following, I could not endure existence if Jesus was not glorified. It would be hell to me if he were to be always dishonored. Such holy indignation and, and jealousy for the name of God comes as we ourselves are committed to worshiping him and seeking to see all the earth adore him. But such holy indignation comes not only as we reflect on who God is and, and be committed to him exclusively with our whole entire being, and as we desire the whole earth to worship him, this holy indignation also comes to us as we reflect and as we have eyes to see the variety of ways our culture is devoted to his idols. The idols of our society look different than in the days of Athens. They're more sophisticated, they're more subtle, but they're with us uh, just as much as they were with the Athenians. We find them just as beautiful, we find them just as useful, we find them just as appealing, we find them just as worthy of pursuit and happiness as the Athenians. When Paul began his speech in the Areopagus, he said in verse, look at verse 22, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, Paul was not just apple polishing here. Um, but to say that um, he was, they were very religious was a very adequate label for them because in the ancient world, um, the more gods you had and the more diverse your worship of gods was, the more religious you are perceived to be. As a matter of fact, the ancient world thought of Christians to be atheists because they only had one God. They thought that was ridiculous. How could you live life without the multiplicity, with all the plethora of gods? So they, they actually thought the Christians who worshipped only one God were atheists. When Paul addresses them as being very religious, it was because they saw how diverse, diverse and sophisticated they were in their in their multiple gods and their worship. But what use was their overcommitment to religious practices, to philosophical pursuits, if they were worshiping man-made idols, if they were pursuing myths that were made by the wisdom of man? Now today we see a growing number of people who are satisfied with the idea of having their own religion or having their own spirituality they are following, they say, have you heard this phrase? I'm following my own heart. Or they would say that they are, um, they're having their own thing. That's what they follow. They like to, to have spirituality based on, on their own ideas. Now, we, we call that today freedom, independence. Friends, the Bible calls it idolatry. The worship of the self or the worship of a God made in our own image. That's what we're doing. We're creating God in our own image as we like him to be. This is idolatry. Anything can become idolatry. Anything, an ideology, 
a thing, a value, a dream, anything that gives sense to our existence, anything that takes the place of God in our lives, anything that takes the place of God in our view of the world and, and, and why the world exists and how it runs. Did you know that even greed is an idol, an idolatry? Even greed. Read Colossians 3.5 and Ephesians 5.5. 5. I love what Calvin said. All is idolatry which men invent without his word. All is idolatry which men invent without his word. Do we have eyes to see the idolatry around us? Or are we impressed only by the artsiness or the industry or fun of a city? Friends, we live in Austin. I mean, think of our own city. People flock to the city because they find it so cool, so artsy, so weird, so different, so attractive. Do we, do we have eyes only to see the artiness, the sophistication of a city? Or do we have eyes also to observe the culture through spiritual eyes, through the lens of the worship due to God? So what does Paul do when he sees a city full of idols. Well, he's provoked. He's provoked. And I challenge us to be provoked by idols. We should, be, we should have hearts that are primed to be provoked by idols. But what does he do once he gets that, that, that indignation, that holy zeal? He's not just seeking cultural transformation by seeking to change their institutions or their politics. Look at what he did to seek the redemption of the city in which he was provoked. Second point that I want to highlight this morning is that Paul began speaking about Jesus. Paul began speaking about Jesus. Look at verse 17 and 18. So in 16, he's provoked by the idols. Verse 17, here's what he does. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. That's what he was doing. And some of the Epicurean Stoic philosophers, Epicurean Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. When we look at Paul's visit to Athens, the attention given um, to this visit most of the time, also almost exclusively, is to his speech on Mars Hills. But even before we look at that speech next time, we cannot miss this detail of what Paul was preaching in Athens before preaching on Mars Hills. Paul was preaching Jesus and his resurrection. Paul's preaching of Jesus happened in the synagogue of the Jews just as it happened in Macedonia. He didn't give up on, on going to the Jews first. He went to the synagogue of the Jews. He preached there, but also he preached in the marketplace every day to people who happened to be there. And friends, here's an interesting detail. Paul did not approach Athens with a desire to get to Mars Hills. Paul was, did not have these strategic ideas of, wow, let me hit the, most, the biggest venues possible so that somehow the gospel might have more fruitfulness if he reached the, the biggest venues possible. There was no strategy for mass evangelism. Paul simply engaged the people of Athens day by day in personal evangelism. 
the last few decades, we have seen a, a growing inclination toward the pursuit of large-scale venues and evangelistic campaigns. And often, they're not bad. Don't think I'm, I'm saying this in a negative way, but they're often pursued at the expense of the simple speaking about Jesus by individual Christians. They're often, there's way more focus given to that than to the simple engagement with people personally. Um, in the 1970s, I think it's the 1970s, jo uh, Joseph Bailey wrote a modern-day parable on this phenomenon, this, this over-infatuation with large-scale stuff for evangelism uh, and, and missing out on the basic, simple engaging with people one-on-one -on -one, uh, that we should be doing as believers. He called this parable the gospel blimp. Uh, it's a parable. If, you've, if, you're not, if you haven't heard about it or haven't read it, Please go get it, read it. It's humorous, but also sad, because it's a parable about us. Uh, and and it, it exaggerates certain things to, to make the point, obviously. But, but uh, it's, it's a story about how two Christians became concerned about the salvation of their neighbors who were not saved. And uh, they were talking about how to reach them with the good news of Jesus. And as they were talking about that, they saw a, um, a blimp. One of those hot air balloons who was taking a message across town, and, and they were captivated by that, that blimp, and they thought, what if we uh, proclaim the Christian message by figuring out a way to use a blimp like that to, to make the name of Jesus exalted over the city? So they figure out a way they, to do that. They get, on, they get a goal to start this ministry, this outreach venue, to, to get a blimp, hire a pilot, even they even incorporated themselves as a parachurch ministry that was designed to take the gospel to that city and to, to the ends of the earth through the blimp ministry. Uh, they start fire, uh, they start fundraising, and they start doing the activity. And uh, they thought, wow, if we could just uh, fly banners with Christian messages across the city of, of the city that were, they were living in and um, throw down tracts and have loudspeakers with Christian music so that this blimp goes over the over the homes of the city, people can just hear the Christian music and, and hear about the name of Jesus. Well, long story short, you really need to read this, the story. Long story short, one of the founders of this, by now it had become an international ministry. One of the founders of this international ministry becomes disenchanted with the methods of the organization. So he, he pulls out slowly out of being engaged with, with this ministry. And, uh, and those in the ministry on the inside start criticizing him that he's He's losing his zeal for the Lord, that he's no longer caring for the souls of the, of the unsaved because he's no longer involved in this ministry. But all along, he was, this, this guy was pulling out. He was using his time to engage his neighbors in a personal way. And he was actually engaged in personal evangelism. The story is, is funny and sad at the same time because it really, it really picks out an, an infatuation we've had with with major venues at the expense of the simple ways each and every one of us can be engaged in speaking about Jesus. <laughs> what we see here in, in, in Paul's attempt in Athens is that the speech on Mar Mars Hills was not his strategy. It just it happened because he was doing the day-to-day -day evangelism in the marketplace. So, I pray that we might realize the, the beauty, the simplicity that each of us can do what Paul did.
prior to Mars Hills. The story of, of, of his visit in Athens should not be so taken just to the speech and the experience on Mars Hills. As a matter of fact, before we get too excited about the reception and the opportunity Paul had at Mars Hills, um, Luke wants to tell us that people who grabbed him and invited him to Mars Hills did it not so much because they began to believe what Paul said. It was actually because of their commitment to innovation that even the opportunity uh, made itself. Look at verse 21. Why was Paul given this opportunity to speak at Mars Hills? Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. In other words, they were committed not only to their idols, they were committed also to innovation. So as long as it's something new, ah, uh, you got my ear. You got my ear. You got my attention. Tell me something new and I'm willing to listen. And their commitment to anything new not only opened the door for Paul to speak at Mars Hills, but also showed its shallowness afterwards when Paul was done with his speech. Look at their reaction in verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. In other words, this, the first category of people said a blatant rejection. No, we're, we're, this is foolish. The others were a little more polite in their rejection. Um, yeah, I hear you, but you know what? I'll hear, you about, I'll hear about this later. It's a nice, polite um, push. Friends, people today can have these kind of reactions over and over again. You see, for both of these groups in Athens, their interest was something new. That was what got them. It was not the truth of the message. Friends, if, if you're someone who is, seems to be driven by innovation, be cautious of bringing that into the spiritual realm. Now, innovation is great in industry. Innovation is great in, in science, in trying to find new things that help us live better and, and, and do better. I'm not saying innovation is bad, but when we bring innovation and a desire and a hunger for innovation uh, into our spiritual lives, be very cautious of that. That's very dangerous. Because, friends, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. There's nothing new we need to experience as if it has not been revealed to us in the past. Paul, uh, the, the apostle Peter says in 2 Peter, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Now let me be clear about the following, about this new innovation. If you've never heard the gospel, I pray you would hear it afresh, even in your own midst. The gospel is the news that God is now granting forgiveness of sins through Jesus to all those who repent and believe in Christ and what Christ has done for us. And if, if that news has, has never been clearly spoken to you, I pray that you would hear it afresh and commit to it. But don't be interested in it just because it's new. It's actually not new. It's really old news. It's great news. Now, in some churches, even in some denominations, this gospel has been so put aside that when you hear it, when they hear it, it feels strange. So it's new. But that's because they have forgotten it. If you're here this morning and had that kind of experience, 
that you have been religious for a long time, but you've, you've not really understood or, or grasped the gospel, and for you all of this is new, then I pray you would respond to it, but not because it's new, but because it's true. If you'd like to know more about it, I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service. But be assured of this. The reason why we preach and declare that people should be Christians is not because of the benefits or the newness it might bring. It's because it's true. That's why. Paul speaking about Athens in about Jesus in Athens gives us a, a caution. Look at verse 33. Tells us that after many rejected, some men joined him and believed. And among them among whom were also Dionysius and a woman named Damaris. It's interesting to compare the results of this mass evangelism platform that happened in Athens and what happened in Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, we were told that a great many of the devout Jews believed. Here, just some. Now, sometimes we think that if we could do a rally if we, uh, with a huge audience, we would have greater results. But the Athenian experience gives us a caution about not putting our confidence in bigger platforms or venues. If God opens them, great. We shouldn't be against Him. But our evangelism strategy should not prioritize bigger platforms as though they're better than personal evangelism that we can do as believers wherever we are. So friends, I pray that just like Paul in Athens, we may respond to the idolatry around us by being willing to speak about Jesus. And for us to take that on ourselves. Don't expect the church to do it. Don't expect other organizations to do it. Don't expect bigger events and bigger things to do it. Take responsibility for it by being engaged in speaking about Jesus wherever you are. I pray that the Lord would challenge our hearts and steer our affections to be provoked by idolatry and to be zealous for the worship of God's name by all people which can only come about by the proclamation and through the proclamation of Christ's death and resurrection. May that be true of us. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Father, thank you that you show us a glimpse of what was happening in Paul's own heart as he approached the city of Athens. Lord, we, as your people gathered in this place, confess that sometimes our hearts have been primed by different things so that we have not been provoked we have not observed, we have not even considered the idolatry around us. But we have been mesmerized. We have been, we have been so taken by the, the beauty, the artiness, the sophistication of our own very city. Father, we pray that you would awaken the eyes of your people, that you would awaken the hearts of your people to be zealous for the exclusive worship of Christ and of God. Father, we pray that you would prime our hearts in such a way that we may not only be provoked by the idolatry around us, but that we might be zealous and willing to take responsibility to address it by speaking about Jesus and offering folks around us the hope, the true knowledge of the true God. Pray that you would do mighty things with us in 2015. Make us a people zealous for the worship of God. Pray in the name of Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Amen.